0: Hello, and welcome to The Regrettable Century. This is a podcast that we recorded with the dudes from Subjective Conditions that we are finally getting mixed down to release to y'all. I think it's, I don't know, it's been several months. I don't even remember when we did it. It was so long ago. Also, you'll notice the intro music is a little different, and that's because it is... Is a song that was specially written and recorded for The Regrettable Century by our friend Connor over at Autumn Brigade. Uh, go check out Autumn Brigade on Bandcamp and we'll go ahead and drop a link in the show notes so you can get to that pretty easily. Without any further ado, here is our episode with subjective conditions about Walter Benjamin.
1: It ain't no neo folk, but it works for us. <laughs> yeah, it, we the neo folk will be keeping with our red-brown affectation.
0: <laughs>
1: Hell yeah. Welcome to Subjective Conditions, exploring the mind and body under capitalism. This is your host, Chief Galaxy Brainer, Chief Inquisitor, Chief Questioner, Chief Smooth-Brain, Sad Boy, uh, Dialectical <laughs> Pessimist, Chairman Bain slash Comrade Adam. I am here. With a whole array of old friends, companion podcast show hosts, and uh, our resident existential clown. So I'll let everyone go around and, and say hi to the people. Hi, I'm Chris
0: from
2: the Regrettable Century. I'm, uh, I'm Kevin from the Regrettable Century.
3: Uh, I'm Jason. I'm also from the Regrettable Century. We don't have cool titles like Adam. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I'm show. waiting for for one to be bestowed upon me by oh. Adam.
1: <laughs> that yeah. actually goal for this episode. You will all have your own unique monikers that you will then just yeah. basically accumulate over time. So, uh, speaking of uh, someone else okay. who has a
4: lot of monikers and, and titles on the show, I am he who accumulates honorifics. Um, Jeff, the existential crap clown, co-renegade monk, and whatever the hell you want else you want to call me. Uh, good to be back.
1: All right, so. That's a pretty uh, good list. Yeah, it's it's good. Yeah, and it's growing, too. Uh, I was thinking maybe we should also call you in the spirit of this episode, uh, like, the chief flaneur or something like that? What do you think? Oh, nice. The chief
4: flaneur. I'm down flaneur. for it. Flaneur My, in chief.
1: For...
4: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there flaneur it is. Flaneur in, flaneur in chief. chief. Right. We got it. My All buddy right. did put me down recently saying that I have a Walter Benjamin mes- mustache, and normally I would say that's a good thing, but, um, you know, not intentional, so... <laughs> Well, uh, speaking of which, uh, the name has been
1: dropped. We are here to do this, I think, is actually our first uh, technical like Lost Horizons collaboration on our new show, Subjective Conditions. I know we did kind of like a, a preview episode on The Regrettable yeah. Century. Two, so this two is, episodes. Actually, yeah, true. Two episodes. But this is like the first legit collaboration now that the show is officially up and running. And we are doing, things, someone that we all have uh, some familiarity with. Some of us are actually zealots and uh, major stands for him. Uh, One of my biggest influences, and I think actually a huge influence on dialectical pessimism as I talk about it, uh, revolutionary pessimism, and I think just kind of like the warm stream Marxist vibe, which I feel like we all uh, adhere to. Uh, We are all Marxism. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Yeah. I would definitely say so. So uh, my my boy, uh, yeah, my ride or die, uh, Wally B, Walter Benjamin. So we are here to do it. I I would say probably like a broad, you know, we'll see where it goes. Open ended, uh, circuitous kind of discussion about Walter Benjamin as a non
2: linear time version yes. of a, yes. a, a discussion.
0: Yeah, Wally B as a vibe. I yes. just provided you with the name of the episode.
4: You're you welcome. got it.
1: You got it. So
4: Roll yeah. And so. <laughs>
1: We're gonna do our best to to really manifest the the spirit of wally b by uh just having this be chaotic and completely uh just shot through with messianic time um a temporality uh we're really not gonna make any sense whatsoever uh and hopefully we will create an open space for the Messiah to come and then retroactively justify everything that we say so like on Other episodes that we've done together,
0: the only structure that existed was what you provided, Adam. And if you're not providing any structure
1: this time, you're going Regrettable Century style. This is just going to be free-flowing. Yes. I think that is actually something that has been a big shift from the old show to this show that I think actually I, I really love. And I think it has led to some pretty great galaxy branding is that, you know, we have some general sources. But we're really relying on the camaraderie and the relational dynamic and energy of the people the people on the episode, so yeah, I guess uh, sure. we're kind of more in y'all's wheelhouse uh, these days now.
0: Much to Kevin's chagrin, I think
2: he would pr- <laughs> he would prefer uh, some structure. I do like structure, honestly. Our, ep- I- oh, fuck, I'm derailing now, but I mean, you know, I it's fine. perfect yeah
1: yeah. well even if it wasn't fine I'm pretty sure that you would be like outvoted and
3: overruled by the majority power yeah Yeah. if it wasn't be fine it would
4: just be tyranny instead yes (laughs) I would say one of the only acts of structure that we've given on past episodes is just doing uh, hard disagrees and throw down debates out of nowhere on pretty trivial points but just to you know kick the powder keg moving that's yeah. only totally
3: structure that's really necessary.
4: Yeah,
1: yeah, I would agree. Well, my thought was, I mean, just to, I don't know if you would call this structure, but as an, an orienting starting point. So Jeff, you and I have been talking about doing a Benjamin episode for quite some time, but I, I want to credit you definitely with the introdu- the introduction of like what this episode is going to be is like a general like Wally B is a vibe kind of approach. So yeah, do you want to talk a little bit about just... What made you want to do this episode or what brought up the idea? And yeah, and then we can go from
4: there. Yeah, definitely. I feel like it's because now I've been through, you know, like a bachelor's and a PhD in social theory and everything. And now that I'm done with my dissertation and out of academia completely, I'm kind of going back into more hardcore Marxism. And I just still have not, since the age of like 19, found somebody who just like hits me the way Wally B does. Um, That is just so he does bring such a different strand and, you know, quote unquote vibe to Marxism than anything else I've encountered. And I think he kind of situates himself, even though he's associated with the Frankfurt school and the Institute for social research, like Horkheimer and Adorno. And he's like of that milieu, he takes such a different tact to, i say with like an Adorno looks at late capitalism and the spectacle as essentially just this never ending apocalypse that we can't kind of get out of that suffocates everything versus kind of the other side of the Marxist pendulum, which is kind of more of the, you know, economistic vulgar Marxism that is just like whatever history doesn't really matter. Cause it will arrive at a telos and it will all kind of like right. arrive. And I feel like he navigates this ambiguity between those points and takes them both at the same time, both kind of taking this harsh, terror that is living under late capitalism and kind of the fear of the break with history while also embracing it because there's kind of no other option. Um, (laughs) And I guess that I feel like just to take a quote of Marx that I feel like he sits at kind of the juncture of is kind of embracing and reacting to that notion of like capitalism melts everything solid into air And it is the reaction to that happening. I think that other people have reactions where it's like, this is great and it needs to be furthered and there's kind of no negative side effects. Others have like, no, we lose all mooring and structure in the world. And maybe this this is the conservative instinct. But I think he takes that moment of dissolution and looks at it as like this fear of the old order of God is almost like evaporating before us and that we should be filled with terror. But the only way through the terror is to embrace it and trying to become the Messiah ourselves in our everyday actions. Um, so it's a bit far flung, but I think like there's, there are little, you know, points and concepts throughout, but I think Walter gets us to, um to new terrain that I think is sorely missing from, I think at least the contemporary leftist discourse that, you know, we're all consuming.
1: Yeah, I would agree. <laughs> I think,
4: <laughs> yeah. And I think too,
1: like, Something you hit on I find really powerful about Benjamin is that in the in the midst of these two contradictory polls, he in the words of one of my favorite memes, because obviously we got to explain memes. Yes, absolutely. About, um, is that he is some mysterious third thing. He is the mysterious yes. third thing that is not being discussed or acknowledged by the two contradictory polls. Also, we'll say too, just to kind of put my cards on the table. I think coming into talking about Benjamin, uh, for anyone that's read, I'm going to just shamelessly plug this too, for anyone that's read my blog, like the last big uh, post on dialectical pessimist subjectivity, for me, Benjamin is a key orienting point. I actually find some of the concepts in Benjamin around uh, how we experience time, uh, how we relate to history, what he calls the weak messianic power, the redemption of the past, and i think something we can also maybe touch on too is his concept of barbarism as like this destructive power that remakes the world that is not necessarily a choice between socialism or barbarism it is a choice between which kind of barbarism are we in service of one that tries to perpetuate the world as it is and the destruction of that or a destructive power that tries to renew the world in a vastly different way so for me um coming from my perspective Thinking about almost like Benjamin as a a really key figure in thinking about occult and esoteric, like mystical traditions of religion. You know, an old friend of his, deep influence on him was Gershom Sholem, the, the, you know, just absolutely amazing Jewish scholar, like writing about Kabbalah. You know, there's a lot of influences in Benjamin that I think make him to me like a daily lived figure that I reference to make sense of like my bodily experience in the world. Like, how do I experience time? How do I experience the way that history is flowing around me and what place we have in it, especially when we have to confront the terror and ideally not turn away from it? So, yeah, I just want to say Benjamin to me is like a figure that is primarily like someone that is about how you shape your day-to-day experience of life in a really powerful way. Despite how abstract he might seem, I find him to be incredibly concrete and material. Have you read uh, Gershom Scholem's book about Walter Benjamin? Uh, No, I have not, but I have read other Scholem, but not that one yet. Have you? Yeah, uh, I have it, but I haven't read it. Uh, I have read his
0: main currents of, what is it? Main Currents of Jewish Mysticism. I remember I read that a few years ago. It's or am I thinking of main currents of Marxism, the Lizak Kolakowski book? Anyway, uh he wrote a, he wrote something similar, and uh I got I got that book like seven or eight years ago, and I read it back then, just about, you know, Kabbalah and other types of like the Merkaba mystics, stuff like that. Um it's really interesting. But uh I haven't I've got that book about Walter Benjamin just sitting on my shelf and I've never read it. I should have actually
3: done it for this episode, but I forgot that I had it until just now. Um well, one thing about Walter Benjamin is like for a very long time, uh, the only people I knew who were interested at all in Walter Benjamin were all ex- extremely insufferable, and uh, so I kind of thought of his work as worthless. And then, <laughs> eventually, I started reading it and was like very disappointed in myself for uh, yeah, because I basically treated it the same way that like I don't know a lot of people like treat Pantera, you know, like <laughs> they you don't listen to Pantera, but they met a guy with the Confederate flag shirt and like cut off camo shorts and like well definitely don't want to listen to that band
2: yeah man that was my <laughs> relationship yeah, right with metal metal yeah. throughout my entire youth <laughs> exactly i like your christ i don't like your christians
0: <laughs> jason <laughs> you use pantera as a metaphor for something in
3: almost every fucking episode <laughs> it's a great metaphor <laughs> it is um well the other metaphor that it's i think i use a lot is a uh, motley crew because that's for like whenever something is you know awesome but it's also really really bad yeah, something that sucks, but it's also fucking cool. <laughs> yeah,
4: <laughs> embrace the cringe.
2: Yeah, uh, just bait yeah. In the cringe. <laughs> yeah, so I think that um, you know, it seems to me that like um, uh, especially you know, on on the subject of 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 time, you know, Benjamin is is um sort of I- intervening. Uh, Against uh, the current of Marxism um, uh, that prevailed, uh, that whether it be Second International or Third International, uh, Mm -hmm. Western or Eastern Marxism, um, uh, revolutionary or uh, reformist, either way, the entirety of Marxism was very. um, uh, It it, uh, the the current seemed to hold history with a capital H as a sort of uh, uh, as an actor itself, as this thing that was happening to us um, um, that didn't involve us. And I think Benjamin's, uh, Response to that was in, in a manner of, of not rejecting the premises of um, uh, dialectical uh, or historical materialism of, you know, the development of history, uh, but complicating them with subjectivity and placing us as agents um, and uh, experiencers in that picture uh, as the, the makers of history um uh in a in a way that doesn't erase that uh, uh allows us to complicate materialism uh, a simple flat materialism uh in in you know uh w- what you might call uh, dialectically
4: <laughs> you might call it that yeah yeah he's definitely against linearity and kind of all of its forms um and this is where the concept of that he brings in of like constellations of history is like a pretty interesting take, and I think a direct response to this like notion of totality that I think is being received from these other strands of Marxism that I think like lead to this linear teleology of history, that it's kind of all on course, whereas in his concept of the constellations of history, which you also see when he's talking about the Fliner and the Arcades project, is it's almost like they're just fractured fragmented moments in time that like we stitch together or that is stitched together in particular moments of like the historical mode of production. And like, if anything, the breaks that he's talking about are like when our historical moments. And I know that he was influenced by Lukacs and history and class consciousness um, in terms of kind of like noticing like moments where you have this refusal or this big break with the social whole and, being listening to how capitalism wants to fix things economically and you have a break, but kind of like going against the Rosa Luxemburg interpretation that the mass strike is kind of this, the biggest thing happening and that's the key moment. It's more like that allows a break where then things are broken apart in almost like a postmodern way that the totality that existed before, there was no necessity to it. And it's broken apart now and what is what the messianic time is, is that we live in that broken moment. And it is that we can stitch things together anew now. And just to kind of pull this thread from what like the, the, his thesis on history to kind of the flaneur aspect. This is kind of how he talks about the way that the flaneur under experiences like late capitalism or, you know, whatever we want to call it at that point in time, modernity throughout the city is they go and they, they walk around. They're this aimless leisure lad, essentially, who's just exploring the city because they have nothing but aimless time. And they encounter different spectacles across the city. And one of these things is the arcades, which are like these glass hallways in Paris that have shops and all these shiny things. And he says that this these arcades act as like one element in these bigger constellations that form the spectacle spectacle of capitalism that show the promise and and what that social formation is offering. But if you can break from that one thing and show that it's a facade, it is like one piece that's being taken as the whole, you kind of reveal the underlying reality.
1: I think one thing too, that's like really important to maybe like kind of define and flesh out his conception of time and like messianic power in time is that, and this is why unironically, you know, a slogan of mine is just abolish linear time. Because with this like kind of capitalist what he calls an empty time that is primarily linear linear in its structure, there is always the assumed feature that the only thing that will ever stop progress that will stop the kind of train of capitalism, you know, just yeeting us into world destruction is that there has to be something at the end of the line of linear progress. And in contrast to that, his description of what this kind of messianic power does, like the way that it actually leads to something truly revolutionary, and I think we could talk about how this might be political, economic, historical, but also I would say this does apply in a kind of as-above-so-below way to how we experience time individually, is that the idea that there is ever this thing at the end of the road, this like Messiah that will then save us from that momentum is also like deeply kind of, again, it does not question the whole nature of time itself, which is thoroughly structured, like under capitalism in this way. But what really revolutionary messianic time is about is the way he describes it is it's almost as if someone within the train, like in the, you know, the engine car of the train throws the brake and those who throw the brake that is the proletariat that is the revolutionary moment that is saying no there is no re- like redemption or savior outside or like at the end of this line at the end of the track there is only those in like in the train on the track that can throw the lever that stops its momentum internally so it's like one of the ways that Sami Khatib, uh, who's a huge like influence on me for how to like kind of engage with Benjamin, who some of us checked out one of his papers, the way he talks about it is that Benjamin has this idea that it's there is this messianic force in Benjamin's idea. It is very theological, it is very like kind of mystical, but there is never like a singular messianic figure. Like there isn't any savior. It's just that the throwing the brake on the train is like opens up the potential for someone to to step into that role, but we never have a strict Messiah that is the figure that will save us. So it's kind of a way of thinking about how do we have this power of redemption and revolution without the need for a figurehead, for a definite figure, kind of a big zaddy that will save us. It really tries to get out of that altogether, which I think is like truly radical and very revolutionary. And actually I think has a lot of, parallels and importance for how we experience time and how we experience that desire like i need i need a big other i need someone to save me i need someone to fix this or give me answers and i think that is a deep trap that we all get stuck in very easily as thus you know those of us on the left are no
3: strangers to right like the idea that every second is a is a moment in which the messiah can uh you know enter the gate or whatever and you kind of pair that with the necessity of breaking apart, that kind of stopped time that the historical materialist can't deal with, it really does just affirm and really deepen and strengthen the idea that there's human agency that is like a critical factor in a way that I think is, you know, of course it's pessimist, but it's not defeatist at all. It's very much the opposite of defeatist. It's just not blindly optimistic. And that's the reason why it's so valuable. To
0: me. I also really love that metaphor of throwing the switch on the train because it brings into focus... Uh, the romantic aspect of Benjamin that uh, that we, that we could use uh, to to help understand the the climate cliff that we are approaching and how mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm, revolution yes. would be throwing the brake on quote unquote progress you know this capitalist vision of progress that's destroying the world and uh, I think that you know whenever we talk about our romantic Marxism this is you know Walter Benjamin is the figure that is the the, the ultimate figure, the ultimate romantic Marxist figure, in my opinion, other than like William Morris, I think.
2: I was about to say William Morris is mine.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, I read William Morris way after I read Walter Benjamin, the ultimate figure
3: of influence on me anyway, you know, whatever. What's really interesting is that like the very first thinker that is even remotely approximates any of this is uh, what that I read was Guy Debord. And then mm-hmm. working backwards, like Benjamin is really very, I mean, obviously it's like the main source in a way that Debord just doesn't even, uh, you know, doesn't acknowledge. But you can draw that line back through Lukács, through Lunacharsky, to Bloch, to Labriola, to Morris. And it's really like, you know, this kind of unbroken chain of the other side of Marxism. It's the other, you know, it's, 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 a it's an approach to time. Benjamin talks about, but it's also like, it's more than just theory. It's also like, it's, it even plays out like this idea that um there are these kind of, what does he call it? He calls it dialectical leaps into the past that like, they are being taken and they're being taken in, in these critical moments that like, even by people who are not trying to take them. Like, I think it's been, the case has been made, I think very effectively to me that like, despite the fact that Lenin is a person who like upholds all of, you know, Kowski and Plakanov and the kind of uh, cold stream economic determinism really in practice, he's, he's very much not one of those. And like the Russian revolution is a really good example of exactly that kind of, that kind of, dialectical leap into the past uh yeah i don't really want to explain that though (laughs) well I i i will try to explain it um
1: i think in a way that it makes sense to me you know benjamin's phrase of the only hope for redemption and revolution is never in the future it is always in the past i think that dialectical like turn of the screw to me was was actually again like very in a deeply personal way it really fundamentally reshaped my way of relating to myself and i think like my own conditions and how i felt about my conditions and and you know and kind of thinking about like where where does my kind of experience where does it live in time and like what am i trying to do like how am i trying to hopefully address not only what's happening internally in terms of my own like ways of suffering, but also thinking about how do I engage in you know, political activist work or organizing, whether that's a union or like black blocking or whatever it might be. But it's it's really interesting because I think there's a deep connection to this like Benjamin like messianic idea of time to the idea of lost futures and Mark Fisher's work, too, that yeah. is counterproductive, like counterintuitive as it is. The idea that the redemption happens in the future, again, is like deeply conditioned by the sense of linear time. But the idea that true redemption is what he calls like taking a tiger's leap into the past and finding how the only way that the present is existing is because of a certain way of like defining what the past is and, and certain potentialities that existed there. And then, and but the idea is, is that there were a whole enormous set of potentialities and potentials and options that, you know, were destroyed or lost or, you know, hidden through political struggle. Or, and I would say this is actually a really important thing with thinking about, let's say, the individual experience of trauma, which is how most of what defines what people suffer from in this way is literally because the past has been defined based on a certain kind of understanding or a certain kind of power struggle between individuals or people within a community and the political structure that they're in it is defined the past in a in a particular way and usually the way that it's defined is one of guilt uh one of shame one of like you failed you are worthless you are you know you have no power you have no agency in this world And most of what I would say real kind of powerful versions of healing are. And I think this should be kind of thought about on a grander political scale, too, is this this ability to look back and say, wait a minute, like I wasn't powerless, I wasn't helpless, I was vulnerable, I was defeated by something much larger than myself. And I can go back and reshape my understanding of the past that then opens up a whole enormous set of potentials in the present. Like it restores agency in this really again, like kind of dialectical way that I just think most of us don't ever conceive of. We think redemption and choice is like in freedom and liberation is something that comes in the future, and I think it traps us the more we get stuck in that.
4: Yeah, yeah. Like, um,
3: have have has anybody else ever been to Berlin? Yep. So you know the like the Holocaust Memorial in in Berlin, this kind of giant monument that's outside. It's like very imposing, but the entire narrative is the general Holocaust narrative, which is all about victimhood and only victimization. Like agency is completely removed from the, uh, the people who were the targets of the Holocaust. So that way, like the, uh, the partisan resistance, the the uprisings in the Warsaw ghettos and stuff, <clears throat> those are great stories, but that's all they They're just like, this is a great story. And also victimhood, but they're never like, mashed together because if they were then victimhood would not be the way that you would have to interpret that and then the way that you would think about the future might be a lot different than a well at least now they have a state so whatever whatever happens in israel that's fine because at least there's a state you know like it would change everything it would change the way that we would conceive of not just what has happened but also what is possible
4: yeah and i feel like there's something here to this like this aestheticization almost of like how do we this like mode of being that Mean's bringing to the table this kind of subjective nature that makes it much more like lived that you don't find other places is like also just noting that benjamin was basically a scenester you know like he was hanging around 1930s germany with bertolt Brecht and he helped ernest block write utopia and was just with all these like cutting edge avant-garde artists and i feel like just the way that He approaches these questions are so much more from this question of, like, of almost an existential nature, which it is notable that he was like competing with Heidegger a lot over the same ideas. And he had like a personal rivalry with him, but just kind of this idea of like false consciousness being this linear nature of history where we're waiting for Messiah versus like, okay, I embrace different moments of the past and I recreate myself moment to moment and to find different ways of being that are kind of blocked off to me. I think somewhere that Adam, Adam was talking about, like lost futures of like, we can find it in the here and now. And if we're, wait, if we're constantly displacing that to the future, um, then like we're missing the entire point and missing the way of like finding the selves that are lost. Um, I feel like I had more, but I lost the train.
2: Man, uh, I, I, uh, I actually didn't know that they were, uh, uh, Benjamin and, and Heidegger were in conversation, uh, di- directly in that way because, uh, that was actually one of the pr- primary sort of takeaway, uh, uh, thoughts that I had, um, uh, after reading the article on, uh, Benjamin on, Benjamin on, on time is, uh, uh i would love to see a sustained uh you know uh, serious study uh of compare and contrast benjamin and heidegger on time that would be so incredibly interesting to me but um uh, uh i i uh, i am i am not that scholar <laughs> cancelled <laughs> hey i'm not saying that heidegger heidegger was necessarily right
0: no no i meant benjamin for uh... Kind of, you know
3: talking to heidegger also oh, carl yeah. schmidt but well,
2: you know,
0: also also kevin it it you're, not, incredibly you're not supposed to heidegger. know about
3: heidegger yeah if you if you know what heidegger had to say that's basically the same thing as agreeing with him
0: yeah i saw uh, a tweet one time that was uh, talking about how people that are really into studying fascism always turn fascist so knowing <laughs> things makes you into into the thing you know about yeah exactly yeah which is why uh, I'm also a medieval monk. <laughs> I, oh, yeah. I, I
3: studied those for a while too. That's, that's also that's also why I'm a priest of Atlantis.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, Actually, we're, y'all are in good company. We got monks, priests of Atlantis. <laughs> this is quite the, quite the panel of guests. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so this does bring up actually, I think, a really interesting question now that we're connecting a dot. So I think one of the things that we've all talked a lot about has to do with kind of the way that identity and subjectivity are experienced in modern capitalism, you know, dare I say like the culture of narcissism and everything else. But I think the idea of connecting up the, the thing you were saying, Jason, about, let's say like the Holocaust narrative is one of victimhood, which is again, like kind of a particular version of that history of like understanding that past that is coming from like a very specific political struggle, and and victors and and those who have been vanquished in some of our Enso Traverso old school language. But I'm I'm curious, like how what what do you all think about the way that like this conception of victimhood that I think has been talked about in terms of like leftist politics or something that is pretty pervasive and like kind of political experience on the left, like how that actually is something that is perpetuating the very like the trauma of history.
2: Hmm. Well, I mean, my first blush reaction to that question is that is to note that that is not a unique uh, that is not a phenomenon unique to the left. Uh, that uh, if you like the right casts itself as victim, uh, Christians are per, uh, persecuted, being persecuted uh, and uh, in Israel. By, by the, yeah. <laughs> by what well, uh by the by their like this is how like in order to push forward a uh religious right uh political agenda they cast themselves as being persecuted thus they have to assert themselves uh against this persecution um uh uh, in, in anyone in our society it's there like identifying this feature what what i want the point i want to make is identifying this feature of the left is to identify a feature of our present condition that there is something that i think should be accurately identified as being wrong with us this is a, a problem that we need to somehow overcome uh, but it is not unique to the left it is absolutely pervasive on the left but uh it is um, it is a feature of our our present condition in the world in the in the in the west uh as we stand that victimhood confers status that mm-hmm. status is uh being sought by everyone and that's how you uh get sort of uh deference um, credentials uh yeah. and credentials that's how you yeah. get uh, uh you know the uh, like you you become correct people defer to you because you have uh properly uh, you know uh because you are recognized as having a, as correctly having them wearing the mantle of victim um uh and you know i think that's a historical development that probably needed to happen in in many ways but i would love to know how do we negate that negation yeah. of the previous condition yeah. uh which, which which was one of valorizing uh valorizing dominance right uh and so that's not good the the negation of that was a valoriz- is a valorization of uh the martyr of the dominated um uh, how do we escape that dialectic or maybe transcend it, uh, so that it, it, we are no longer in the condition and, you know, I don't give a shit if the right keeps doing it, they can have that horseshit if they want it, but I do want the left to be able to transcend this shit. Uh, I, I just, I don't know. I don't have an answer for how we do that.
0: Well, it's, yeah. it's it's sort of built into like the, uh academic leftist way of understanding the world and it you know i mean like uh i i don't know if it's so insidious as to consciously be something that is meant to keep us from ever being able to figure out what to do to move forward but that's certainly the role that it plays um so yeah i don't know i i think that like uh as long as the tone is being set by people who don't actually want to change
4: anything. then it's going to continue to be the dominant narrative, I think. Yeah, well, I think this is where like Benjamin and Scene Kid comes in for me in terms of like being kind of the ultimate hipster who's like, yeah, our local music scene, like everybody just portrays themselves as cool and cold and detached, but they're not actually like making anything and like they're just kind of selling us that brand. Whereas in like what he's kind of calling for is like, get back to the real rock and roll, man. Like start making weird shit. Have like the faith to like to try something weird and put together some type of monstrosity. And this is even how he kind of like writes about being, the role of the creative in the class struggle and the author's producer is like the goal of the author is to create something that cannot be assimilated by capital Like it is so such a monstrous kind of funky work that it can't be used for any other purpose than kind of making that break with what is. Um, Yeah. Okay, cool. Uh, Well, I mean,
1: I think in terms of like what to do about like when this kind of victim role kind of thing happens, I would say that, I, I do think it's incredibly pervasive across like all elements of the political spectrum, except maybe the fucking centrist. Um, but I would say that I think that what we're encountering is actually like a deeper experience of kind of uh, like psychic structure, personality that shows up in political discourse in certain ways. I think the one thing about like kind of the victim role is that it is primarily a trauma response. And I think that's what's really powerful about it is that even though I think it can be incredibly destructive and really like, I I mean, just use this word, I mean, I think it can actually be very toxic and corrosive to like interpersonal relations, to like building community, to actually feeling safe and engaged in the world. It actually does have a very necessary protective function in a certain kind of condition. That condition is usually where we are being overwhelmed, traumatized, uh, you know, threatened on such a deep bodily level that we feel helpless and powerless. And the victim narrative, funny enough, is actually like one that's thoroughly defined by the, the emotion of shame, this feeling of like, I am helpless, I am powerless and, and I am bad and I'm worthy and I'm unlovable. And strangely enough, it actually provides us with a measure of deep, uh, kind of unconscious feelings of power and control because if i am a victim and i can kind of focus in on myself and my experience it's actually deeply protective because it allows us to have some sense of power and control because if i'm a victim and these things are happening to me it's a way of wrestling control back by putting attention and focus on my experience and it is 100 it is a trauma response it is a survival response In the face of helpless overwhelming power and violence and so that's what i think is really tricky about it and maybe for me the like the the turn of the dialectic is actually to say okay yes this actually can be very destructive and 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 corrosive to relationship to feeling that you have power and agency in the world and actually deeply to being accountable for the harm and role that you have had in your life and in the world and as a historical subject it's just that allows that to then start to be worked through in a way because we precisely understand, well, this is the role that it plays. Like it does give you something really meaningful and what feels like power and control if you allow yourself to be in that position. And I think that's the tricky part is like how do you both have compassion for like the role that that plays in people's lives and why they might find themselves so drawn to it while also saying, and it is actually destructive and harmful, and usually leads to deeply controlling manipulative dynamics and how people try to feel safe in the world, too.
3: Well, yeah, like, um, if you want to compare like a, the memorial that I talked about in Berlin, you compare that to like monuments to the partisans, um, in Eastern Europe, the, dif- the difference is immense because one of them is like how sad it is that this happened, and it, of course, it's sad. But the other one is like, how heroic was this, uh, you know, resistance to the things that were said? And, you know, you you, you can like think back to a, like American history and you could think about like the way that Nat Turner read about Moses. And like, you could see why maybe some people don't want to promote a, a narrative in which victimhood is not taken as all there is. If um, you know, if if Western Europeans and Americans learn about the Holocaust the same way that Eastern Europeans used to, anyways, the only way, the only lesson that could be drawn from that is that like the way to deal with their oppression, lean on each other, support each other, but then also like resist it, divine violence, yeah, and not wait for a Messiah because even even the Jews um, dealing with slavery in Egypt, they weren't waiting to be rescued, they were rescued. There's this Eastern Orthodox. Uh, approach to the world, which is like, you have to build the kingdom of God on earth. And like, it's almost incalculable the amount of uh, that kind of sentiment as it pervaded through the the Russian population and how much of an effect it had. You know, it's it's really, really sad actually how much it was the attempt to uh, beat that out of people might have been because who knows what could happen if it was just left alone. Another Walter Benjamin concept is the concept of
0: divine violence. I know we didn't read about that. It wasn't in any of our readings, but, you know, the uh, the disruptive violence of the oppressed against the oppressor as being, like, the the vengeance of God for the evils committed against them. And uh, I guess it's not, for, for Benjamin, he, he catches it in terms that leave it more ambiguous, uh, like the vengeance of God, the vengeance of the gods, the vengeance of, like, you know the numinous other or whatever but uh it's the law disrupting violence done on behalf of the oppressed yeah
1: yeah i think actually just to continue like drawing threads together of the like as above so below here like benjamin talking about that on the level of how to disrupt oppressive social systems and like the violence that is done it's really interesting that in individual experiences of victimhood one of the only ways that I have encountered of how to break out of that is essentially like the victimhood narrative, just to, I'm going to get real nerdy and galaxy brand about this for a moment. because I think it's very politically like relevant. Whenever we are in that kind of victimhood narrative, it is actually deeply tied to a certain nervous system state. That nervous system state is one that is characterized prof- by profound emotional shutdown and numbness. Um, basically whenever dissociation is happening, um, depression is happening, it's actually where we have been so overwhelmed by threat and we cannot fight back and we cannot escape. So where we go to is the deepest levels of survival that we have. It's like the kind of like lizard brain stuff. Like we shut down completely and that's where like victimhood narratives come from. Actually, they're like ways of making sense of that nervous system response So one of the only ways to break out of that to, like, kind of overcome the victim narrative is a recapturing of the fight response. It is a recapturing and an an association to the repressed rage and fury and I would dare say divine violence Mm -hmm. that was not able to be actualized in the original experience of the wounding of the trauma. So I think this is actually something Benjamin in this very, like, to me, just beautiful, fascinating way is talking about this way that like violence and anger or rage or whatever needs to be accessed on this social political level that directly correlates to what needs to happen to break out of victimhood on the individual level. And I think that's why, like, to me, his work is so, like it is the bridge between the subjective and like kind of the objective political, political environment. It's like, it's this process that he seems to, I think, be really keyed in on, on like, this is what needs to happen. If you want to overcome that limitation and that feeling of, yeah, we're just the victims of history.
4: Yeah. And I think to bring it up to that level of like the victims of history, but also this victimhood on the left, it's like, You could read in a way like historical materialism as a method for trying to understand one's victimhood and how they came to a place of not having any power by giving you a theory of the social and of history and the structures that made it so you could occupy such a position. It's almost like what you have is like a neurosis built around the understanding and kind of the story you build a victimhood that makes it so you can't understand yourself separate from it but also kind of negates the whole points of trying of understanding or at least recognizes it's the limits of understanding is that you understand in order to change not in order to stay static so it's like the at least if we're talking like constrained to the left and like also i think what benny means talking about in terms of this like theological empty time that even leftists subscribe to of like the, the messiah will come later it's it's kind of that that break between Marxism as a science versus Marxism as revolution. It's like we've right, mistaken yeah. the the diagnosis for the end in itself and we've been holding off on trying to on the fact that we have a scalpel and we should be using it to cut, um, to get rid of everything and like try to, to try to change it in the here and now. Mm. That's really well said.
1: I like that a lot. Also, it just sounds like we're basically saying you know, Marxism should not be your identity on your TikTok. <laughs> That's well, essentially, yeah. yeah. We're basically saying you define yourself by the knowledge of your own pain and victimhood. It's like, no, you, you understand to like, yeah, engage in divine violence and restructure the world and restructure your experience.
3: Yeah, well, and just in case we weren't saying that, we're saying that now, definitely.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> Marxism is more than
0: a curated affectation. Apparently that's what I hear anyway. Yeah.
3: Apparently.
2: Would that it were so. Uh,
4: I do wonder that, how, this like, is aspirational. Yeah. <laughs> I do wonder how Benjamin's biography kind of fits into this. Cause he was like, he's kind of like the son of like a fairly wealthy, um, Jewish family in the, in germ the German empire. And he kind of just like flitted around, um, you know, learning and stuff, but then like writing a bunch of like, kind of crazy out there stuff that nobody would publish. They, he kept getting denied like tenure positions for teaching because this stuff was too out there and it challenged the orthodoxy. And I feel like it's, it's almost like this notion of failure is kind of like what we've been talking victimhood, but I think failure is kind of like part and parcel of this as well. And maybe like, maybe this is abstracting too much to like the the case of current leftists, but it's like you you yourself was a victim because of, you know, failure construed broadly at some point. But you're so afraid to ever try to escape that again so that like you're attempting to get out of the failure and be I don't know, successful, I don't want to use these terms of failure and success, but like to move on from it, to try to be something new again. If you fail again and you're back in that place you would rather just never do anything so you kind of sit from your perch and anytime anybody tries to do something new or something different it maybe this decries more the academic left that i'm coming from and trying to get away from um yeah, it's, it's not that much different from it's the like, that academic No, don't try that. they tried that you know 50 years ago in a completely different socio-historical context or well, let's just wait for the you know active proletariat to arise and it's like I'd rather everybody go try something and fail a million times trying something new than just sit at the edge of the party shitting on everybody else for like trying to have, you know, fun singing to a song and having a beer or something. And those are kind of conflated metaphors, but it's it is something I'm I'm feeling from this conversation. Well, and I think what you're
1: speaking to as well, just to again kind of reference how this has a lot of weight in kind of just individual subjective experience you're describing the cycle of perfectionism and procrastination like that. Essentially when I am so terrified of failing and the shame I would feel by feeling that I'm not capable, I'm not powerful, you know, I don't have any worth like we will procrastinate and we will demand that I will not engage until something is perfect. And until I can guarantee that that will be my, my ability to achieve something, it has to be on that level, which is essentially saying to be inhuman, then we will essentially procrastinate until conditions force us to have to do it because some greater catastrophe would then happen. Like, just as a simple example, a lot of people struggle with, like, meeting, uh, like meeting deadlines or, like, procrastinating on, like, let's say, homework or something. I mean, fuck homework, but, you know, like, essentially, like, hot take there, um, just abolish homework. Um, but essentially... <laughs> I was waiting for Chris to fire back on that. Abolish progressive education. Uh, yeah. Oh, but there we go. Hell yeah. Um, but yeah, so the idea is like that if I am terrified of not doing something perfectly because of the shame that it would engender and the feeling of failure, I will then procrastinate until the absolute last moment. And it's almost like I need that terror of not doing it at all and then, and then something even worse happening to actually generate the momentum to then do the thing. And I think this is actually, you know, again, like we can kind of blow this out to like bigger political kind of ideological things. But I mean, that's a really that's a very real thing that people struggle with is this feeling of I'm so terrified of actually failing or feeling that sense of responsibility for my choices and how I show up in the world. And if I can't be perfect, then I'm not going to engage until it's absolutely necessary.
3: Yeah, I mean, there's a there's a very direct analog between uh what you just said and also the non-academic left especially when it comes to like the most crucial uh ingredient of this kind of potion that we're all ostensibly we're all working on developing for the uh deployment of the revolution you know like the cultivation that particular ingredient of class struggle is like the one thing that the vast majority of the left they just won't participate in because it's not perfect because you know, the unions, they, uh, they're all reactionary or they're bought off or whatever, or in political struggle because you know, this, this group of people supports the Democrats, supports the Republicans, but there's no third place. And so the only place to go is with my friends, you know, so maybe for some people it's on campus, but for other people, it's just in a different place, but the attitude is the same. It's just, it's still a fear, a fear of failure. It's, it's 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 the same thing as what adam just said applies to the whole left in in terms of actual
4: practice yeah maybe this is where kind of bringing in his quote on the angel of history can be kind of helpful um from the theses on history I'll read the shortest version of it but this is how one perceives the angel of history. His face is turned towards the past where we perceive a chain of events. He sees one single catastrophe, which keeps piling wreckage and hurls it in front of his feet. The angel would like to stay awaken the dead and make whole that what, what has been smashed. Um, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I feel like part of what we're talking about here is that like, and, the context in which Ben Uli is writing, but also the contemporary left is like, we've given up on utopian experiments because of so many failed ones, like the Stalinist epic or Pol Pot in Cambodia and some of these other examples. And like also kind of dovetails with Sam Wynn recently wrote a book on kind of like cold war liberalism and how it basically cut off the utopian progressive aspects of liberalism that like even Karl Marx was like a big proponent of liberalism for that component. But it's just like, cut off any idea that the world could be better because it might not work out perfectly. Like these are little experiments in time. And I feel like this is where the constellation aspect or this like, you choose history to get over the current trauma is like, we're left with the debris behind us and we see it just as a mess. But it's like, if you go through and you pick, you pick out individual pieces, you could actually string that together into a new constellation of success. It's Mm -hmm. not all catastrophe. And that could be used to propel ourselves continuously in the future. It doesn't have to be screaming at the carnage. It just has to be recognizing, yes, failures will happen. So if you're afraid of that, if you're afraid of failures, get out of here. Like just give up completely because that's just how it works. And we're never gonna have the perfect version. Like you're never gonna have the end of society like telos where all of a sudden socialism is hit and everything's perfect. It's like, it's just gonna continue being a mess because that's what it is to be alive.
3: That's actually um, just because we said a a negative thing about Rosa Luxemburg already, the positive thing uh, in her, I I think it's in her debate with Bernstein. I think, yeah, where she says that like the proletariat by necessity is going to uh, attempt to take power and then it's even going to take power. And then she puts prematurely in quotations several times until the time is actually right because it's by virtue of actually doing so that the time becomes right. That's actually that the, the process of a uh, maturation is an active process. So like seizing power before it's really a good idea is what makes it a good idea in the first place. So like, you know, and another person that wrote about this co- same kind of thing that you just said, but from a very different, well, at least a different way of saying it is Christopher Lash, you know, and it is this destruction of liberalism's, uh, you know, progressive variant and the utopian horizons is a very obvious and uh, definite consequence of that, no matter what you think about what to do or which tradition you're part of, the reality is that like the destruction of the utopian horizons and the retreat to waiting for some more opportune moment some more perfect time, some more messianic figures to arrive is a, is the only guaranteed way to not move at all, which is what liberalism has become about, yeah like is not moving
0: in in fact that's the stated aim is to you know america's already great right
3: yeah exactly
1: yeah and i can't help but think too that so much of all of this you know whether it's liberalism or thinking about you know even kind of more the individual subjective experiences these all again still really assume the empty capitalist time that benjamin is talking about it's still always this thing that is coming progressively in the future at the end of this line. And I think that's what's so like interesting and powerful about Benjamin's idea of like pulling the brake in this kind of messianic time is it thoroughly cuts off the need for, I have some awareness or I can predict or be in control of what the outcome or what the end of the empty time will be. Like it just fundamentally throws that out the window and is saying, it is essentially like every moment is what he calls like yes uh i think it's like yet's time it's like basically like okay, now time yeah it's this idea of like no like every moment in the past and its entirety and the present and the future they are happening right now all the time there is no linearity in the way that capitalism has conditioned us to believe so if that is the case then failure Or failure in the way that we think about it and our affective relation to it, which I think is one fundamentally of shame and the avoidance of that and fear. Once you throw out that conception of time, the way that we relate to it emotionally also shifts. And then all of a sudden, it's more about, I dare I say, like risk, joy, excitement, Mm -hmm. like possibility. Like all of a sudden, now you're thoroughly an agent of history. And also, I think that that's something that we're deeply terrified of is like to be really engaged, really like really accountable for the actions and decisions that we're making.
3: Well, yeah, and, to have responsibilities. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That's cringe, bro. Yeah. Is uh yet zeit is the, the time where, um, where decades happen and when, and, uh, homogenous time is where hours happen over decades. Yeah. Hmm.
4: Yeah. Well, it makes sense, sense, Ben. You mean it was really influenced by Lukács and the history and class consciousness just in the sense of, like, the organizational principle that Lukács brings to the table of, like, yeah, all these socialists can argue days and days about these different doctrines that are allowed to exist next to each other, like the most contradictory ones in a party because they don't have an organizational principle, because they don't have to prove themselves kind of on the train of battle. Right. And that, like that it is only through the organizational principle and trying to operationalize different theories or different um, diagnoses of the situation and to respond to them, that that the theory itself can be clarified and how you you can keep learning, I think the maturation that you were talking about Jason, in terms of like from Luxembourg, that it's like, it's only through continuing to put out these experiments in ways of being, if it were, and see what comes back and what fits that actual historical in- conjuncture and that yeah. it will keep changing over time. Um, that like, I don't Yeah. If, if you're not doing anything, then if nothing is going to happen and we're just going to keep waiting for Godot. Right. I think the, my favorite thing that I've written, I
3: wrote down from the, on the concept of history is uh, I think it's the 11th. Uh, Cause it's like a bunch of theses, but the 11th one is he says that nothing has corrupted the German working class so much as the notion that it was moving with the current. And then it further says, in it's like the 12th one, that social democracy has assigned the working class the role of humanity's redeemer, but it's also cut off the sinews of its strength. Yeah, it's just very, very clear. I agree with that completely. Well, kind of related to this as well,
1: maybe I'd be curious to hear everyone's thoughts about, in a way, the necessity of having an ethics that goes along with some of the implications of this. Because you know what I'm kind of focusing in on in terms of the like subjective experience of how we relate to failure, how we relate to time, the, the idea of taking fully in control one's kind of messianic power, the possibility of redemption at any moment. Um, I can't I think this is, thesis, this is the fourth thesis, but this is one that I, I wrote about that was like has been pretty inspirational to me. He says class struggle, for which a historian schooled in Marx is always in evidence, is a fight for the crude and material things without which no refined and spiritual things could exist. But, But these latter things, which are present in class struggle, are not present as a vision of spoils that fall to the victor. They are alive in this struggle as confidence, courage, humor, cunning, and fortitude, and have effects that reach far back into the past. They constantly call into question every victory past and present of the rulers as flowers turn towards the sun, which has which has been strives to turn by dint of a secret heliotropism towards that sun, which is rising in the sky of history. The historical materialist must be aware of this most inconspicuous of all transformations. So what always struck me about that is just the direct naming of like the I would call them virtues, cunning, fortitude, humor, courage, you know, it's like he's almost kind of describing that you have to be able to relate to time to the world to history to struggle from these kind of places and like with these qualities to be able to in a way like fully take on this kind of possibility of redemption. It's like it really does call into question like, Who are we as individuals, as subjects, trying to act in history? And and what is required to actually be able to respond to the call to that? So, yes, what do you think about the place of ethics in all of this? Go. Yes. Agreed.
4: (laughs) I think it dovetails a lot with our last episode on Simone de Beauvoir and just kind of like what we've been talking about very much is just like responsibility for one's actions so like to take responsibility in itself is kind of the first and foremost like level of the ethics but i feel like what benny mean is also saying is like we have a responsibility to i don't know to like keep trying to bring forth things that haven't been seen before um yeah I i don't have the better thought but well regrettable century boys, correct me if I'm wrong, but y'all
1: did some work with Varn on Marxist virtue ethics. am I remembering that correctly? Yes, we did yeah, I was curious if that kind of resonates in any of this
2: um i so I think um so the goal in virtue ethics or the the sort of the point uh to be made there is um that uh, the good is captured in uh, in 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 uh realization of potential, that what it is to be a good human is a similar sort of thing as it is to say uh you know uh, this is a good microphone or you know this is a good beer which it's not uh but it's um inspired. <laughs> <God's> <laughs> Uh, but it. it's it's um it's a uh it's a fulfillment of function, you know. It's to say that uh, um, so, so there there's a sort of turn of phrase that I've uh I had long sort of settled into using, where I, I would say something along the lines of whenever I'm frustrated with uh my own um uh, you know, uh, struggling with life in general, in, in whatever aspect, I would say something like, I'm not very good at being a person. Uh, virtue ethics would say, this is what ethics, what it is to be an ethical to be ethical is to be good at being a person. Uh, so I, I think that, um, the way this, you know, um, um, you know, uh, so, you know, this view of ethics as pioneered by the ancient Greeks was one of, um, uh, you know, uh, a virtue ethics of the elite, uh, uh, which makes sense. Uh, they were the, the leisurely class who were able to sit around and think about things. And they thought of themselves as the best, um, because, uh, they had, uh, slaves and whatever else to uh, rely on to do, uh, their ma- manual labor for them. um, I, I think combining this um, – uh, 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 instead of throwing the baby out with the bathwater, I think taking that th- this uh, ethical approach to the world and combining it with one of uh, historical materialism, uh, perhaps a Hegelian, Marxist Hegelianism that allows for social change and, sa- and, and rather than saying uh, those who have succeeded in our currently existing social order – are the exemplars of, uh, the highest potential of, uh, or the highest uh, expression of human potential. Uh, we would say that, uh, the social order stymies, uh, the, uh, the highest, uh, poten- uh, expression of human potential and, and rather, uh, the highest expression of human potential is in the striving to, uh, change the social order and realizing, uh, a, a better humanity, a better, um, version of ourselves. Um, and to be ethical is to look to the heroes of, uh, the working class movement globally, historically. Uh, and presently as well as to look to, you know, uh, the, the leaders, uh, the, the, those who are most well-respected when you look around your your local community and you see the people who are the most widely and well-respected, those are the virtuous people. Um, so I think, uh, you know, uh, to be an ethical person, uh, in this sense is to, um, is to refuse passivity, um, uh, and to refuse leaving, um, uh, uh history as the agent, uh, re- refuse to leave history as the agent, and rather to recognize your own, um, uh, place in, uh, in, uh, in whatever time you do exist in. Uh, but but without delusions i don't know does that speak does that speak to the the question i mean that it, shit slaps
1: like, as far as i 'm concerned i mean there are you know
0: i i think the the thing that makes virtue ethics um i mean the having a set of virtues that you think are the are the ones that that are to be emulated so if we were to have a a set of marxist virtue ethics we would have to have a set of marxist virtues that were to be emulated and you know there's the the christian ones that saint thomas aquinas like lays out which are uh you know an evolution from his aristotelian understanding of virtues combined with uh you know what it is to be a good christian Uh, and those are like prudence temperance courage justice Charity and beatitude. I mean, you know, so they're like, they're pretty universal um, virtues. Anyway, I think the only one in there that's not wouldn't be universal. And a lot of Marxists would really disagree. This would be chastity, right? <laughs> um yeah, but I think that you can just double down on prudence for that one, and you yeah. be chased when it's prudent to be chased. <laughs> right, right. I mean, yeah, I, yeah, well, I, I
2: was gonna say like a, a sort of sense of like uh, so, proportionality and uh, yeah, a, a yeah. proper time and place for things, and uh, you know, uh, not being just sort of like totally given over to your um, to your passions to right? your passions. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Although, yeah. if you
3: think about the 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 average person who would call themselves a Marxist today. I don't even think that that would be taken for granted. Right. I I, I would also just add that like one thing that I think, again, uh, the average person who calls himself a Marxist would maybe think of themselves as doing this, but I think should be a much more conscious virtue is, uh, anything that brings together, like anything that coheres people as opposed to, uh, scattering people. So that means like right. insisting upon, uh, programmatic dogmatic differences to the point of actually not combining people and making a, a more complex sum of you know all of the parts is a uh, yeah that's that's a that's a critically lacking virtue right now and the other thing right. is like you know it, it flows from that but like to actually be you know because you have to if if you take seriously the idea that the working class could be you know, combined and composed and thus become conscious of its own role in history and also if its role in history is, if you can accept that its role in history is to, uh, you know, stop capitalism, however you want to define that process, I think it would flow from that if you thought those things, that uh, that would be the most important thing that you would ever do with anything, any of your time, certainly your, you know, the ultimate cause of your life would all be in service of that and if that was true then i would say that uh, the number of virtuous communists is a it's far too few at least right now so yeah i actually think what you're you're speaking to is really
1: crucial because the way that you're describing that like jason and chris is like kind of the idea of, like, virtue has to be built around what I would call a process of integration and not fragmentation of, like, the class or, like, the social body or social relations. So, you know, in my own kind of exploration of this stuff and, and really trying to figure out, okay, what does seem to be a set of ethics or virtues that I want to live by, uh, actually a specific kind of therapy that we've talked a lot about on the show, Internal Family Systems, really uses the language of we all have parts— in the way that we navigate the world, like a part of me thinks this, a part of me feels this way. And the whole idea is how do we integrate all these parts into like a collective body that is integrated and functions most effectively in the world. And what's really interesting is in this type of therapy, I've like just straight ripped this and like politically co-opted this into being like my personal Marxist virtue ethics. So they have these things called the eight C's. I'm curious what you all think about these. So they are confidence, calmness creativity clarity curiosity courage compassion and connectedness and you know when i think about organizing like how i try to show up in the world how i try to hopefully always be working to like build social bonds and like build like strong healthy secure like relationship like with myself with you know my partner like with my friends with my community like trying to build a union i have actually i'm like this is a pretty fucking good list like if i'm showing up and i feel like i am actually embodying like what it is for me to be like i guess what i would consider myself as a i mean the short version is eco-marxist but the long version is like her- hermetic alchemical occult esoteric hermetic yogi hegelian marxist that with, should be the you know, short version
4: yeah that should be I'm the short sure remember that honorific for later. yeah but. that'll be,
1: preserved. but you know, but just like those those to me about I'm like, man, that's what it is to be like deeply communist on like a subjective level is like really showing up that way, you know, as mm-hmm. much as I can in my day to day life yeah uh, and and actually, one last thing too, Kevin, I think what you were saying about living without delusion is really key because that's that's to me where Buddhist practice is really powerful because the whole thing about Buddhist practices is all of us are suffering and perpetuating the wheel of birth and death because we live in hatred, greed, and delusion. And how do we put out those fires? That seems to be also, again, like deeply political
4: to me and how we about doing that. Uh, no, and I think to bring it back to like this everyday notion of ethics, but also a little bit of the Benjamin in terms of like, you know, the whole point of the messianic time is him saying that that's kind of how it always is we forget that's the case that we're in a constant state of emergency and that there is danger all around us and that's kind of the condition and situation under which we're existing and i think also to bring it to like our subjective experience of the class struggle kind of what he's against the linear notion of the class struggle is that it's happening somewhere else it's like separate from us as yeah. individuals whereas in what yeah. he's asking is like what are the moments in your life that you were engaged in the class struggle, where there is danger, where there are those around you that you kind of need to rally? And I, I know that Adam and I have talked about it before in terms of like, what is that? What is the ethics of like, I don't know, being a manager at work or something when you're you're in a weird position in the class struggle? But I think it is something that that carries through to these moments of danger. It's like, you know, say we're all just like out in the wilderness. There wolf, there's wolves all around, and we have to survive with the five people we got. It's like. To be virtuous in that moment is not to be the asshole on the edge who's poo-pooing everything, dragging his feet and eating all the food. It's not to be the one freaking out. It's to be the one who takes a calm appraisal of the situation, integrates everybody who is kind of assholes to each other in some level, but gets you some type of collective sentiment and steers you throughout the survival using each aspect of every person. And I guess like when you're thinking about it on the individual like ethics level, it's like, are those moments when you're at the workplace or you're at the neighborhood junction or, or like wherever it is that you're engaging in the class struggle in your everyday life, are you living that way? Or are you treating the class struggle as ever present and all around us at every moment? And I guess like for me, that's where the ethics is. And this is where it gets to the deep war. It's like, what we're, what is ethical is what works um, and what keeps everybody safe in this condition of danger. Um, and if you're not at all concerned with other people in this moment of danger and you're just in it and you're navel gazing and just kind of caught up in your own narcissism itself, like that's not what's being ethical. And I, I feel like, I don't know, I faced this in the academic left of like being around all these super faux radicals. Who wouldn't join a union? Or would you, or, you know, when we were grad students unionizing, would be like, well, that's going to interfere with my individual status here that I've cultivated in the departments. Right. And I use that status to get pre-bends, essentially and all these like economic benefits. And it's like that it's when you put it at that level, it's like, what are you doing to like help the other people around who are of the same status? Um, especially when you have the moments to do so, like, I don't know, that's, that's what the ethical means for me. And I feel like what I'm pulling from the Benjamin here,
0: the unions are ableist anyway. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I I read about how, you know, even the language of unions like scab, Hmm. it stigmatizes healing. So that's bad. Um, And, you know, not everyone can walk a picket line. So,
4: you know, I would never join a union. All the the research on the effects of their internal grievance processes on, you know, getting rid of sexual and gender harassment. Like, I don't know. It's it's, it was written by white men. So I don't trust it. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly.
0: Yeah, I mean, unions are Eurocentric anyway. Who came up with them? <laughs> that's a good point.
4: Yeah. Plus, when I'm a consultant working for one of the big four, coming into these buildings and telling them how real smart people do things and saying cut staff and layoffs, you know, that gets in the way of my livelihood. So that's yeah. wrong.
2: We need equity, not equality.
4: Right, right.
2: Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that that whole conversation about equity versus e- equality, it really baffled me for a long time until I uh, uh, finally encountered somebody. Because um, I, you know, I wanted my goddamnedest to try to understand what the criticism is exactly. And somebody finally came along and was like, "No, actually, when somebody says equity, not equality, that's they're just." Going boogity 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 and like confusing <laughs> you. That doesn't actually mean anything. It's equality or it's not equality. Now we can talk about like equality in in what ways, in what terms. But it's either equality or it's not equality. It's not where there's not there's no like negation of equality going on here. There there's uh, or, or transcendence of equality going on here. That's just uh uh it's just um you know a, a right wing uh you know uh, negation of the leftist uh, uh, assertion of equality as a good as a value you know yeah, but kevin
3: that's all old left what well, you just said that's all <laughs> old left stuff and you know what that means Old is bad yeah because that's red brown and whatever it's also every other bad thing it's it's a ableist and so on and i don't want to And the
2: old left um uh took state power uh and the new <laughs> yeah. left never did so exactly uh, and fuck it. I mean, fuck. Even the old left. Even if you're an anarchist, old left. You know, the 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 Spaniard uh, Republicans uh, came a hell of a lot closer than any of the anarchists of the new left. So I'll ta- I'll take so, them.
0: So equity is where you have uh, a box that's tall enough for you to see over the fence. Equality <laughs> yeah. is where you both have the same size box, and the tall guy can see over the fence and the short guy can't.
2: Right, exactly. So exactly. it's like in, in both scenarios, there there is equality of distribution of boxes, or there is equality of ability to see the game, uh, <laughs> or we remove the fence, and there is equality of, of access to the game in the first instance or whatever. But in, in every instance, we're talking about equality, uh, or we're talking about not having equality or whatever. But it, it, there is equity is not... Um, opposed to equality, uh, uh, unless you're just trying to obfuscate the issue so that you can implement reaction. Yeah, but Kevin, so what you're doing
3: is you're talking about a, a paradigm, and we should be exacerbating or exuding all paradigms or whatever. You know, the end of that. <laughs> <laughs> you'll notice that in this liberal
0: metaphor, there's no idea of, there's no suggestion of removing the fence. It's right. well, the, the fence is not. always there. Well, yeah.
3: because if the fence wasn't there, then we would never know who deserves to see over it. There has to be some way of means testing, who gets the box? Yeah,
0: exactly. Yeah. I don't, I'm not going to let fucking everyone have. What if this kid like got a got his parents were white and he got to go to school for you know with them paying for it? He doesn't deserve a box. He could buy his own box.
3: Well, and also like he he <laughs> might have laughed at a racist joke whenever he was 14. And the fact yeah, that exactly he's, <laughs> the fact that he's 37 now is irrelevant.
0: Yeah, exactly.
4: Also, you guys are missing out. I might not be on the fence one day. I might be in the owner's box. Well, right, there's, there's also
3: that yeah hey adam you said you had to leave by three thirty, and it's three fifteen, and it's yes. feeling like we are we've run out of steam so <laughs> i
1: don't know what we're, you want to uh, do with that but i just we're circling
2: figured- the drain here yeah, yeah yeah
3: well
1: i was gonna check in do y'all want to do final thoughts or any any last pieces that we haven't covered
3: i would like to describe I mean, again- several more memes <laughs> oh,
2: yeah
1: this is really the, the kind of fuckers. describing meme portion of the show just for r.i.p kevin here
2: yeah that's the thing that i i uh cannot tolerate no more no more meme describing i can you know, i can deal kevin, with the lack of structure but no more meme describing
0: but you know <laughs> we only des-
2: do it because
0: you hate it right <laughs> yeah exactly it's like we double down on the meme describing because of how much i literally literally make about Benjamin it. memes
1: right now.
0: Walter Benjamin memes is a paper that somebody wrote and it pops up on my academia.edu like suggestions on a regular basis. Wow. I think that, just, that's a sign.
3: Yeah. You know, from It's God. a sign
0: that we should talk about memes more.
3: But actual final thoughts, I don't know. I mean <laughs> I feel like
2: I feel like I've gotten a lot of my thoughts out. Is there such a thing as finality? Oh shit. <laughs>
0: Well, a finality would uh, suggest that, like, there is this this uh, linear conception of time, right? Where
3: things beginning, end, middle, and end, right? Yeah, well, so. right. And also, like, you know, you can't have infinity and the finite as as opposed. If there's a, if there is an infinity, the finite has to be incorporated within that infinity. So. If you think Really of,
4: what we're seeing is just the debris of all our failures piling up behind us, but that on yeah. a, a later episode, we can go through, pick through, and pick out the gems. Yeah, exactly. And that's what uh, we'll be doing in the editing session. <laughs> so Good a, luck to whoever's yeah, editing. And, and also, maybe, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we will literally become like the angel of history, like trying to edit this episode. I feel like we didn't touch the work of art in the age of its mechanical reproduction yeah, so and life what that means for media and our conceptions of self at all. So that'd be cool. Pull that in at some point.
3: Yeah, we got 10 minutes left.
4: (laughs) Okay. So one
0: of the things I never understood about the work of the art in the age of reproduction is he spends like a whole hell of a lot of time complaining about how everything sucks now that uh, art is easily reproduced. But then at the very end, he's just like, yeah, but it's cool because (laughs) it's uh, makes art so that it can be
3: more useful for the process of, revolution well i think what, like what but benjamin doing there is he's embodying a kind of an ideal that we, we've actually spoken to at various points throughout this whole discussion which is that like it's not good enough to just lament what is happening you know like yes it's it sucks that it happened but it did happen so now what and what he's trying to do in that essay is he's yeah. trying to pull out what is possible considering all these circumstances which um maybe we would have avoided if we could but since we haven't avoided them, and they are, they can't be re, uh, reversed. What else can there be? And maybe he doesn't do the best job, but he does in the essay with it, with an attempt to actually, like, um, you know, t- for for his pessimism to uh, you know, to be to sublate his optimism, it's for his pessimism to be a, you know, dialectical. No,
1: I do think. There is, no final, there is no final thought in this episode to, to really stick to the Wally B vibe. What I would say, though, is I think what you're speaking to, Jason, is really important about, I don't know, not a final thought, but something to take that has been present throughout the entire episode. Which is, how do you deal with the conditions and the wreckage of history that we're all inheriting? And, and yeah, there is no going back what there is, is this tiger's leap into the past, like Benjamin talks about, to then reconfigure or develop a new constellation. But I, I think it's it's interesting that we were talking about failure with all of this. Because, I mean, we could say that Benjamin fails at the end of that essay, but I do think, like, one of the saints of dialectical pessimism or revolutionary pessimism or gothic Marxism should be Samuel Beckett, which is, you know, oh, yeah. fail, fail again, fail better. Like, that's the idea. It's like, yes, you forward. Have- yeah, you have to continue failing. That is the only way to like deal with this. But I, I hell also yeah, I'm think doing a good other, job then. <laughs> hell yeah, yeah, we all are. Just massive fail sons just constantly. And that is the revolutionary ethic. Yeah. But I, just, I also just wanted to tag in. I mean, the phrase that the only way out is through is kind of, I'm 14 years old and this is deep as that is. I think it's a deeply Benjamin-esque revolutionary cry, which is- Like, that is the only thing we that is the only thing that we have to do. And we will definitely fail in the process of trying to do that. And yet we can do nothing else if we want to, you know, attempt to open up that space for the messianic power.
3: That sounds like a really good ending.
1: So anyway, there's this Benjamin meme that I just found that's like really great where it's like, it's like Pepe Silvia, but it's Benjamin's face on Charlie Day and he's pointing to the angel of history on like the... (laughs)